On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Looks like every person that I put out you know, we'll, we'll never stop being a star. But what we're going to do is you're going to be trained to appear in number one places around the country and even before the king and queen. And my mom would say, now see, they're dressed nicely. These kids did $200 million in record sales and $800 million in touring and merchandise. I was like, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> What'd you do? I said, I think I can do that. I think I can put a group like that together. In March of the boy band Banner Year of 2000, a four-part vocal group called NSYNC dropped their second album, No Strings Attached, which immediately topped the Billboard charts and sold more than 2.4 million copies in the first week, a new industry record. But heartthrob Justin Timberlake, bad boy J.C. Chazay, goofball Joey Fatone, babyface Lance Bass, and proto-steampunk Chris Kirkpatrick were struggling behind the scenes. The album name came from Chris, a reference to the song I've Got No Strings from Disney's Pinocchio. The first single off the album, certainly their most memorable song, Bye Bye Bye, shows the boys as marionette puppets breaking from their strings and running, 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 on top of a train for some reason, followed by a car chase featuring a very obvious product placement for BMW. The puppet master that NSYNC was saying bye-bye-bye to was infamous producer and Ponzi schemer Lou Pearlman, the mastermind that handcrafted both NSYNC and their rival group, the Backstreet Boys. This episode is largely a story about so-called Svengali's, a word that came up again and again in our research to describe each of the producers and talent agents we'll be covering today. Svengali was a character from an 1894 novel called Trilby, published by George de Maurier, about a beautiful young woman who can't sing a note until she meets a masterful but unsuccessful and unattractive middle-aged musician who hypnotizes her, essentially begins singing through her, making him very rich and her very famous, but only if she stays under his influence. Behind most every prominent boy band, there is a Svengali, a marionettist, a puppet master, managing all aspects of their image. Music, fashion, public persona, behavior, finances, time, everything. These producers work to channel American and global fangirl hysteria into massive profits by making a perfect product of the boy. 
But what makes a perfect product in pop music requires a delicate cultural balancing act, a careful puppeting of both their Pinocchios and the fangirls who love them. But more importantly, it's also a puppeting of discerning suburban parents whose choices with their disposable income often contradicts another song in Disney's Pinocchio. Because when you wish upon a star, of course it makes a difference who you are. So before we get to our stories today, let's try to nail down our working definition of what a boy band is. A vocal group of at least two people made of boys or young men with a focus on harmony and synchronized dance, simple lyrics, and memorable melodies. The audience, as we covered in our last episode called Fangirls, is mostly tweenage or teenage girls. Whereas man bands form themselves and write their own music, boy bands are usually created through a talent manager or producer or other artificial means. The Beatles are often called the first boy band, and though they don't fit our working definition, they possess important qualities that would go on to define the structure. It was a bit sort of old hat anyway, all wearing leather gear, and we decided we didn't want to look sort of ridiculous, and Brian suggested that we just sort of wore ordinary suits. Before they became acid-enlightened, the four-piece band was gussied up by their manager, the young Brian Epstein. He got rid of their blue jeans and leather jackets, got them to stop eating and smoking on stage. No more goofing around or play-fighting, and definitely no more of that sailor-level Liverpool swearing they were in the bad habit of slanging out. Instead, Epstein encouraged them to wear sweaters and eventually had suits and ties altered to fit those hopeful bad boys who were, as we might imagine, reluctant at first. But capitalism always wins, as noted by John Lennon. I'll wear a suit. I'll wear a bloody balloon if somebody's going to pay me. After the unprecedented success of the band and the 1964 premieres of the smash hit films A Hard Day's Night and Help, pop music would get meta when Los Angeles-based producer Bob Raffleson was inspired to create a TV show centered on a musical group not unlike the Fab Four. In the fall of 1965, an ad was placed in the Hollywood trade papers with the headline, Madness, inviting four insane boys aged 17 to 21 to audition for acting roles in a new TV series. After months of screen testing, the final four boys were chosen. But the choices were not made for musical talent, which some of the members did possess, but more so for each distinctive look and personality, with Bob attempting to replicate what had endeared the Beatles to the public, both on stage and off, a formula that allowed the girls to define their own personalities 
based on which of the boys really struck their fancy. So, like the Beatles, each of the monkeys needed an archetype. Needed to be, as series director James Frawley said, one quarter of the perfect man. There was the cute one, Davy Jones, the funny one, Mickey Dolenz, the sensitive one, Peter Tork, and the smart one, Michael Nesmith. Their songs were written by the likes of Neil Diamond and Carol King, and the producers made it so that the boys need only step up to the microphone and sing along to the pre-recorded tracks. Regardless of these manufactured origins, the tween girl demographic got sick with monkey mania, and the show would even go on to win an Emmy in 1967 for Outstanding Comedy Series. But the true origin of the boy bands we're talking about today came not from Hollywood, California, but rather a city in Michigan known to locals as Motor City. That is what Detroit-based Motown Records exec Barry Gordy heard when he auditioned a local pop vocal group made up of tween and teenage brothers Jackie Tito, Jermaine, Marlon, and the strikingly talented 10-year-old lead singer Michael. By 1969, the Jackson Five would appear on The Ed Sullivan Show to an audience of millions, and the next year, their single, I Want You Back, would top the charts, and not just the R&B or soul charts, but the pop charts, which black groups and singers were rarely able to do. But this little group of brothers had a whole lot of what the industry calls crossover appeal, which oftentimes refers to black artists who are embraced by a mainstream white audience. Not only were the Jackson 5 extremely popular with both black and white kids, but they were also considered appropriate enough by white parents of the late 1960s to land their very own Saturday morning cartoon TV show. Hope you boys don't mind if I hum along a few sips. I just dig soul sounds the most. But that's just it, Mr. Wizard, sir. We can't play. We're afraid to. You see, sir, there was this witch and... Oh, that old hag, she put a hex on you, did she? Well, I'll fix that. But that crossover appeal was no coincidence. It had been carefully crafted by Barry Gordy, who had previously worked at the Ford Motor Company, so he knew something about streamlined manufacturing. He applied the same principles to his performers, what he called quality control, teaming up with the one-of-a-kind Maxine Powell, who he met in the early 1960s. She was a former actress, model, manicurist, cosmetologist, self-improvement speaker, the founder of an early black modeling agency and finishing school, and she would even perform her own one-woman show. 
After Barry invited her to come and watch some of his young acts, many from the nearby projects, she called them rude and crude, diamonds in the rough, recognizing that their unrefined behavior was never going to fly with the mainstream white audiences that Motown was looking to cultivate. So Barry asked Maxine to work with him full-time at Motown Records. She closed down the Maxine Powell Finishing and Modeling School to become Motown's Director of Artistic Development, running the company's very own charm school, working with bands like The Temptations and The Supremes, who had served as major inspirations for the Jackson 5. I said, uh, when I opened up a finishing school in Motown, everybody was sitting in a circle like this because I believe everybody is a star and everybody is someone. So I want you to feel like that. And I said from the beginning, we're going to open up a department that has nothing to do with the records. But what we're going to do is you're going to be trained to appear in number one places around the country and even before the king and queen. These youngsters said, you must be out of your mind. All we want is a hit record. (laughs) So we worked and worked, and I said, class will turn the heads of kings and queens. All of Motown's performers, including the young group, were required to spend two hours a day studying with Maxine whenever they were in the city. Even the smallest things were important at the Motown Charm School, with classes on speech and grammar, posture, how to walk elegantly, and even how to sit right in a limousine. Maxine said her goal was to get the performers ready to be welcomed to the White House or the royal palace. Though their crossover appeal was monumental, the Jackson 5 still found themselves battling it out for number one hits through the early 1970s with their lily-white, squeaky-clean Mormon rivals, the Osmonds, backed by massive funding from MGM Records. They were another group of brothers who had a very similar sound and look to the J5, and soon they too had their own cartoon TV show. Hey, we better take him back to the hotel. Yeah, but we'll never get through that mob of fans out there. It's disguise time, guys. Hey, Fuji, bring us the beer. This would be a familiar battle, replicated again and again in the music industry. Not just a battle between white boy bands and black boy bands, but a battle where whiteness and blackness have different cultural values and mean different things to different people. And finding the perfect blend of both seemed to be a prerequisite to mega success. And following in the footsteps of Barry Gordy, a man calling himself the General was ready to try his hand at that formula and become America's next top Svengali. More after this. 
You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American can hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box that's code american hysteria 50 at factormeals.com/americanhysteria50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active check out factor today the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. Maurice Starr's name is appropriate. He claims he can make anyone a star, and the last thing anyone needs is talent. And to hear him tell it, he's only just begun. I choose what the people want. It looks like every person that I put out, you know, will, will never stop being a star. It makes me look good. Looks like I have a magical touch. When Maurice Starr was still Larry Curtis Johnson, it was the mid-1960s in Florida, and all he wanted in the world was to be in a band like his heroes, the Jackson Five, a dream shared by his parents. And at just 10 years old, little Larry and his five brothers found themselves touring the country as the Johnson Brothers Band. Not being able to break out of the local music scene, the family moved to Boston, where 17-year-old Larry was still imbued with an unwavering confidence, with a certainty that he would make it. But the prospect seemed always to be just out of reach. When the Johnson Brothers Band proved a bust, Larry spent his 20s writing songs for artists like Grandmaster Flash, singing and partying in plenty of nightclubs, but at the same time, flat broke. By the late 1970s, Larry Johnson knew he needed a makeover, so he became the much hipper Maurice Starr. Maurice chosen because he liked the French chicness, and Starr because, well, that's what he was destined to be. He would release two solo albums under this name, Flaming Star and Space Lady. Both of them flopped. After that, 
Maurice Starr realized that perhaps he was not meant to be a star per se, but to create them like a god. And being a god really seemed to suit the man who called himself the general, who cut an imposing figure at six foot three and 240 pounds. Even though he hadn't become a pop star himself, he was still extremely talented, a multi-instrumentalist, a fantastic singer, a prolific writer, composer, and even a choreographer. He had all the ingredients he needed to make a hit boy band. It's just that the general wasn't boy band material anymore. So he pivoted course, started Streetwise Records, and began hosting talent shows, looking for acts to sign. Boys with the kind of bubblegum blood that these hysterical teenage girls, both black and white, were out for. In 1978, a harmony band of young teenagers, fronted by a little Bobby Brown, competed in one such talent show, coming in second place, so impressing the impresario and the young teenage audience that he signed them to his label on the spot, ignoring the actual winners. In what felt like a positive omen, the band's name was New Edition, which to them meant the new edition of the Jackson 5. That night, I went and I wrote the song Candy Girl, resembling the song uh, ABC by the Jackson 5. The General immediately wrote an album of songs that were basically deliberate Jackson 5 ripoffs, and then choreographed the dance routines that went with each, working with the new edition guys day and night and styling them tirelessly until they were ready to release their first hit single, Candy Girl. The song reached number one on what was then called the Hot Black Singles chart, but peaked out at 46 on the Billboard Top 100. Despite the long and exhausting tour that followed and all of the hundreds of hours of work that New Edition put in, Starr would drop the boys back off where they lived in the Boston projects, each with a check for $1.87. Why? They were apparently paying Maurice back for all the tour expenses. With the encouragement of their furious parents, and after a lengthy court battle, New Edition would part ways with Maurice Starr. This was an emotional blow to the man who decided to pay his employees $1.87 for a chart-topping hit and a national tour, and friends say Maurice grew quite depressed. He continued to watch the success of New Edition, who were playing constantly on R&B and soul radio stations, but were not crossing over to white audiences the way that Maurice had wanted, the way the Jackson 5 had. But then, the general realized that maybe he had it backwards. Maybe he needed to start with a group of white kids. Despite all the gimmickry, Starr's young prodigies seemed to believe in him. 
We're in show business, and that's what it's all about, you know, being, being, having all this on and, and, and having, you know, something fun to, you know, play with, and, and, it, and it's just fun. He's given me an opportunity to, you know, entertain millions and millions of people, but, and I, and I thank him for that. Maurice would tell the L.A. Times in 1989, quote, What I had in mind for New Edition was making them the new Jackson 5. With new kids, I wanted to recreate the Osmonds. The Osmonds had talent, but they didn't have soul, and they didn't have enough good material. The new kids are different from the Osmonds. They have talent and soul and good material good black material. If New Edition was as big as they were, I could imagine what would happen if white kids were doing the same thing. Marie Starr was first impressed with the rapping of Donnie Wahlberg, a 15-year-old kid who had attended a largely black school in the 70s, something he said was the greatest thing to ever happen to his career. He called his black friends his biggest influence, who gave him a love of soul, R&B, and rap, especially Michael Jackson. After meeting Donnie, Maurice told him to go forth into his neighborhood and make a band, a white band. And so he gathered a handful of his friends, a rough bunch, not particularly good singers or dancers, but that didn't matter to Maurice Starr. He was going for a look, more than a sound, and thus, the new kids on the block were formed. Maurice would purposefully hire an almost all-black support staff, from choreographers to vocal coaches to their manager and their road manager, bodyguards, their MC, and their backing band. They learned to dance at the Lee School, a community center for black kids, with Maurice trying to get them to sing like New Edition and making sure to cultivate an urban look. Maurice again got to work composing an album, writing almost every note and lyric, playing almost all the instruments on the track. The general, who soon took that nickname to the next level, wearing a full flamboyant red or black general outfit as part of his persona, was known to work prolifically, quickly, with legends of a hundred songs written the year before, 25 songs written on a one-hour flight using just a tape recorder. Whether or not these tales are true, he had once been Billboard's Songwriter of the Year because he had written so many hit songs. Once the new kids had some semblance of their act together, the general got them gigs in black venues, clubs, and theaters in the Boston area. Quote, I wanted them to work for black audiences. They're the tough audiences for a group like this. Right away, they'd see a black ripoff. They'd boo you off stage. I knew when they were good enough to be accepted by black audiences, they were ready. Maurice claimed that the patrons of a lot of these venues did like the new kids show. But in other venues, the doofy posers were indeed booed off stage. And no matter how hard they tried, radio stations that catered to black listeners were simply not interested, hesitant to play this white boy knockoff of New Edition. 
Soon, Maurice figured out that he had again done it backwards. He had tried to make a white group to appeal to black radio, when he actually should have been making a white group emulating a black group that was safe enough for the white teeny bopper crowd and their suburban parents. So the project pivoted gears. After promoting their new album, also written by Starr, on pop radio stations, New Kids shot to the top of the Billboard charts at a time when American parents of tweens and teens had about $6 billion a year in disposable income to spend on their kids, including their hysterical fangirls. But in the drug-crazed, AIDS-tainted, satanic decade of the 1980s, these parents wanted safe content, not demonic heavy metal or sexually explicit gangster rap. The new kids had just enough of that cool urban edge to gain the coveted attention of their fangirls, but not enough to raise a suburban parent's eyebrow. The band went even farther willing to side with parents on the hot-button issues of the decade. What is the message that you give to your fans in your songs? We just try and, you know, entertain us, love songs or whatever. But hanging tough has a message that's to hang tough in whatever you do. It's going out to all the kids in America. All the ladies. uh, Don't let adults put you down. (laughs) No, no, hanging tough is like... It's telling all the kids in the world to hang tough against all the negative things like drugs and gangs and violence and stuff like that and lead a a positive life. The sloppy dancing of the new kids on the block held the odd pelvis swing here and there, but by and large, the routines were appropriate. And sex was almost never alluded to in the gummy sweet love lord lyrics or the pump up power songs. This conservatism proved a marketing success as the company began selling the boys' faces on anything you could imagine. Calendars, towels, nightshirts, hats, jewelry, medallions, watches, six-foot posters, pillowcases, games, toys, sleeping bags, and of course, dolls. The new kids on the block played the Super Bowl. They performed at Disneyland. They became Disney staples. And, like the Osmonds and the Jackson 5 before them, they also got their very own cartoon TV show. How am I ever going to know what I'm missing if I don't check out the scene? Step off, John. We owe this to Joe. Okay, Donnie, but you're forgetting about... Word up, gentlemen. Biscuit! B-Man, our favorite bodyguard. Just talking about you, B-Man. Despite this ridiculously, cartoonishly massive success... The new kids on the block were never able to cross over successfully onto the R&B charts or radio stations. This was deeply upsetting to Donnie Wahlberg, who said in the early 1990s, It's great to be a hit with the pop audience, but we want to make it with the black audience. Once we're a hit on black radio and with a black audience, then we've really made it. Not long after, he would say in another interview, Every white person in America should read the autobiography of Malcolm X. As for Marie Starr, he and the New Kids parted ways in 1993 for reasons I can't figure out. 
but to this day, they speak warmly of him and credit him gratefully with their success. So it seems like Mr. Dollar 87 treated them better than he had the boys of New Edition. But one member of his original band would take the lessons he learned from the general to usher in the next new generation of pop. All right. <laughs> we kind of portray that as far as the kind of clothing that we wear, you know, the jeans, jackets, shirts. Yeah. yeah. See, my mom would say, now, see, they're dressed nicely. <laughs> Boys to Men started off writing harmonies and singing in the halls of their high school in the late 1980s, modeling themselves after their heroes, New Edition, even naming themselves after their song, Boys to Men. They practiced in the bathroom, in the halls, after school, until their harmonies were chilling in their precision. When they started taking themselves seriously as an actual vocal group, they boldly approached Michael Bivens, singer of New Edition, at one of his shows and just started singing right there beside the stage. A circle of eavesdroppers formed around Nathan and Wanya Morris, Sean Stockman, and Michael McCary, with Michael Bivens later admitting that he had been stunned by the group not wanting to say at that moment what he was really thinking, that Boys to Men was better than New Edition. A few weeks later, after the group continuously called his house day after day begging him, Michael Bivens would agree to manage the group. Right away, Michael saw the potential for the crossover success that New Edition was never able to achieve. He styled them in bow ties and sweaters to make them safe for mom, making sure the music they sang could be heard by mom, too, whereas many of the R&B acts of the time tended to make a kid blush if their parents were in earshot. But Michael did not want B2M to go to bubblegum and lose the respect of their black audience either. And so he helped them toe that line skillfully, not unlike Barry Gordy and Maxine Powell had 30 years before. By 1992, Boys to Men would be picked up by Motown Records, and their hit, End of the Road, would set a record for the longest time staying at number one on the whole Billboard charts for 13 weeks, a record previously held by Elvis Presley. Their next albums continued to beat their own records in 1993 and 1994, gaining the group millions of fangirls, a majority of them white. When Bill Clinton was elected, in a moment that Maxine Powell had dreamed about decades before, he invited boys to men to the White House. But for every Jackson 5, there is an Osmonds. 
And soon, something eventually dubbed the boys to men effect would bring their dreams to a sudden halt. A casting notice in the Orlando Sentinel appeared like a bad omen during the height of the group's success that was seeking a, quote, new kids on the block look with a boys to men sound. And then there they were, rising on the charts, a five-piece vocal group that sounded eerily similar to B2M. That's right, BSB. As Michael Bivens would later reflect, quote, it went from the four black kids on the bedroom wall to the five white kids on the bedroom wall. What looked more appropriate? As we'll see, the new Spengali behind this new band couldn't have been more different from the ones that came before. More after this. And now, back to the show. Little Lou Perlman just loved blimps. His autobiography recalls a formative tale of looking out his window at a Goodyear blimp landing at the nearby Flushing Airport in preparation for the 1964 New York World's Fair. After initially being denied access to the blimp, he finessed his way on board using his status as a school newspaper reporter to qualify him as a journalist. After that, little Lou started hanging around the airport, doing odd jobs and falling in love with the world of aviation. Despite Lou's assertions that his entire life changed the day he saw that beautiful blimp, this story isn't actually his at all. He stole it from his childhood friend, Alan Gross. Another story he told involved a business scheme he came up with as a preteen, buying out a New York paper route, working with the paper boys to personalize each drop-off, even creating a partnership with Dunkin' Donuts, who provided pastries for each customer right along with their morning paper. Also, a complete fabrication. Lou was a real nerdy kid pocket protector nerdy, beaten up and made fun of for being chubby and socially inept. But that taunting didn't seem to phase the boy, who loved any and all attention. He lied shamelessly about his life so often that his schoolmates doubted his most told whopper that he was the cousin of music sensation Art Garfunkel. Well, imagine their surprise when, during Lou's bar mitzvah, the folk legend appeared, hugging Lou with one arm and chatting with his gobsmacked friends. That moment in the limelight, or at least that moment in the vicarious glow of a second-hand limelight, Lou would never forget that feeling. As a teenager and young adult, he would continue to study his favorite thing, blimps, 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 blimps. And finally, in 1980, when he was in his mid-20s, he started his own blimp company, Airship Enterprises. Their first endeavor would be to lease one out to Jordache Jeans, with the intention of flying their logo on the side of this gold-painted blimp above a New York harbor. 
but Lou cut costs by purchasing a used blimp frame and using cheap gold paint that later turned to an ugly brown in the sun. When it came time for the big show, the blimp barely got off the ground and quite appropriately bounced a few times before landing in a nearby landfill. Lou blamed the gold paint that Jordash had insisted upon using, saying that it made the blimp too heavy. Alan Gross would later claim that the whole thing had been an insurance scam and that Lou knew the blimp was useless. And then, in the early 90s, Lou started Transcontinental Airlines, boasting a fleet of 49 planes, but actually only having zero. In order to get investors for his new company, he showed them photos of a Boeing jet, which were later revealed to be no more than close-up shots of a model airplane painted with the company logo, Lou's hand conveniently out of frame. Eventually, when his company actually had some planes, a chance encounter on one of them would lead to an explosion in the new generation of boy bands that came at the turn of the millennium. It was a plane charter that introduced Lou to his music business future. In 1991, Perlman chartered a plane to the hit group New Kids on the Block. And I just questioned, how could these kids afford an airplane? And I was told these kids did $200 million in record sales and $800 million in touring and merchandising. I was like, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> so what'd you do? I said, I think I can do that. I think I can put a group like that together. And so in 1992, Lou Perlman would begin auditioning hundreds of teenagers in an open casting call in his company's airplane hangar to find his perfect new kids on the block, boys to men, white boy combo, ultimately choosing heartthrob Nick Carter, babyface Howie Duro, bad boy AJ McLean, goofball Brian Luttrell, and the mysterious one, Kevin Richardson, forming them into the streetwise sounding group, the Backstreet Boys. Lou Perlman, still an eternal nerd, would ask to be called Big Papa, talking in urban slang in ways that would make even the new kids blush with embarrassment. He became a kind of odd father figure and a best friend to his boy bands, who seemed to love him dearly at the time. He showered the boys with fancy hotels, expensive clothing and toys, beautiful meals, and all the fun, fun, fun they could take. He had assured them that all their grueling work, learning harmonies and complicated choreography, practiced where else but in his private airplane hangar, and their hundreds of concerts and mall appearances would pay off. But by the time they'd become an international success with two hit albums in 1997, the Backstreet Boys were presented with their first checks for $10,000 each, which amounted to nowhere near minimum wage. And so BSB sued Lou, eventually reaching a settlement with the band giving him $30 million in exchange for cutting their strings. In that contract, when it came to the breakdown of the profits, it turned out that Lou had named himself 
the sixth member of the Backstreet Boys, a con for another cut of cash, yes, but also what he had always wanted since Art Garfunkel had made him feel like a star. Big Papa wasn't phased by his dismissal from the Backstreet Boys because he had already crafted their competition in sync, who he would pit against each other while hiding from both bands that he was managing the other. He'd pull the same financial con on NSYNC until, of course, they too said bye-bye-bye to Papa Perlman. But even that wouldn't stop this Bengali, who was trying to turn Orlando into a watered-down version of Motown, attempting to replicate his former successes with bands like LFO, even creating his very own finishing school where his mostly white acts were taught how to dance and sing, how to dress and act in an urban style that was essentially mimicking boys to men. In this way, the transcontinental finishing school became the inverse of the Motown charm school that came before. But before this spectacular and gross downfall, Lou Pearlman would kick off the meta-boy band Age, hosting a show called Making the Band, which saw him finally in the limelight himself, as he traveled to eight cities to find 25 young men who would compete to become the next hot boy band in his boy band corral. At the end of the season, O-Town would become the monkeys of this new generation of boy bands, their album reaching number three on the Billboard charts. Or maybe it was the fictional band Together that was the true monkeys of millennial pop, with MTV premiering their first full-length movie about this fictional, satirical boy band trying to make it big, which would be so successful that it continued into a season-long TV series. Their comical single, You Plus Me Equals Us, would land their joke pop album an actual spot on the Billboard Top 100 and gave them an opening slot for a Britney Spears tour that summer. And they stayed in character the whole time, utilizing blown-out boy band archetypes. Jack in the Box would also create their own fake band called the Meaty Cheesy Boys, with characters named TK, JT, TJ, EJ, and a second EJ, with actual bangers like Let's Go Get Some Fries and You Are the One. As goofy as this commercial campaign was, the Meaty Cheesy Boys would still go on to perform their biggest hit, Ultimate Cheeseburger at the Billboard Music Awards. The meaty cheesy boy. Pop punk rising stars Blink 182 
also premiered their music video for All the Small Things, a parody of a collection of popular boy band music videos of that year by the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and 98 Degrees, which ironically shot Blink-182 to boy band status with their own sea of screaming fangirls, including me. But that's a story for another time. The rise of the internet only offered new peaks of success and fandom for acts like the Jonas Brothers and One Direction and BTS that I am simply too old and too tired to learn about, let alone talk about. But I think we can all agree that they owe their style to the same lineage that we've looked at today. Because the general truths of the pop industry seem to remain the same decade after decade, all the way back to the beginning of the American hysterical fangirl. As we covered in our previous episode, the word teenager was actually originally a marketing term for a brand new group of consumers by their white middle-class suburban parents' post-war cash. Once the moral panics around these hysterical fangirls of Frank Sinatra and Elvis and the Beatles started to wane, parents didn't mind quite so much their daughter's unorthodox obsessions. But the target of those obsessions, well, that still mattered immensely. And so these producers and talent managers behind these bands were able to, at least for a time, create the perfect man, as the monkeys were once supposed to represent. They did this through personality archetypes, yes, but even more so through the delicate balancing act of presenting black creativity and style with the respectability and perceived safety that comes along with whiteness in America. As we've seen today, these Svengalis, as the press calls them, some honest, others not so much, do wield a great deal of puppet master power over their manufactured and sometimes manipulated acts. But come on, it's a little hyperbolic, a little ridiculous, to compare them to the original story of Trilby and of Svengali singing through his star. Well, I thought so too, until I read a little side story about the General Maurice Starr, who was accused in 1992 of quite a musical crime. A producer who had worked at his label, Gregory McPherson, sued Maurice for breach of contract and made the bold claim that in actuality, the new kids on the block had sang only about 20% of their own vocals on all the albums made while he had worked with them. In an interview, Gregory McPherson said, quote, You know how Little Rich can impersonate so many different celebrities? That's exactly what Maurice does, except he mimics singers' voices. He's like a musical ventriloquist. It's amazing to watch him do it. He's so exceptionally talented, he can sound like five different guys. 
He was backed up by Florida composer James Capra, who co-wrote the New Kids' 1986 hit Angel, which he said was sung entirely by Maurice on the final track. In addition, producer Bernard Thomas was in studio during the tracking of the New Kids' 1990 hit Step by Step, and he had this to say, quote, Maurice Starr is the New Kids on the Block. The kids do sing, but the voice you hear on the hits is Maurice. Of course, the general and the new kids vehemently denied the claims, and the band filed a defamation lawsuit against Greg McPherson, who was soon singing a different tune, dropping his own lawsuit and recanting, stating publicly, quote, the new kids did sing lead on their vocals. And that is most likely case closed, never mind the other two witnesses. But whether or not there's any truth to this legend, it's an apt metaphor all the same. Maurice Starr had dreamed of becoming the next Jackson 5. And for all intents and purposes, he did. He became the most popular bubblegum boy band in America standing behind the curtain and mouthing along to the words. This was American Hysteria. If you love our show and want more of it, consider becoming a patron. You'll get access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show that I do with producer Miranda about all the hottest drama from the cutting room floor. Thank you so much to all of our patrons, old and new. And if you'd like to be in our little community, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. Follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Camo Studios, co-researched and co-written by Riley Smith, and co-edited and co-produced by Miranda Zickler, with voice acting by Will Rogers and Riley Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening. And as TikTok makes boy band dances cool again, may the elementary school talent shows always be filled with awkward routines by dedicated tweens. Have a great week.